A reading from the New, uh, sorry, from the Old Testament. Esther 5, verses 1 through 14. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine at the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged up on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as I pray? God, you are alive. You are the God that has spoken. You haven't left us alone. You've made the world, and you've made us. And you have... Um, reached out to us through Jesus Christ and his gospel. We pray now that you would uh, penetrate our hearts and minds with what is true, what is good and right. In Christ's name, amen. There are times when we take a risk or a step, and it becomes a transforming moment in our lives. It becomes a big moment as we look back on it, the lives of uh, our own lives or the lives of people we know, maybe even affects a movement. We were recently catching up on the last Hobbit movie. There's three of them, you know. And... um, 
we were, I think, at the Battle of the Five Armies. And in that story, if you've seen it, Thorin, the dwarf, uh, gets crazy with greed. He gets what's called dragon sickness. And what happens is, as he's under that sickness, he basically just stops functioning. He's not leading his army. They have this great need before them. He's shrinking back. And it's not until he steps out of that, until he gets out of that and takes, takes his risk, that he actually mobilizes people, begins to make a difference, begins to change. Well, we might say that Queen Esther has palace sickness. She has been drafted by Xerxes, the king of Persia at that time, into her harem. She actually is appointed queen. But she has been living in luxury five years now, removed from her people, her community, her faith. Uh, She doesn't uh, even know that there has been an edict to commit genocide against the Jewish community until Mordecai, her older cousin, like a father who raised her, sends word to her about it. And when she hears the word, her instinct is to hesitate. It's to do nothing. But she doesn't stay there. When she risks and sticks her neck out, that not only becomes the moment that things go into motion for the sake of her people, saving her people, but more so it becomes the transforming moment in Esther's life. The moment where she steps up and steps out becomes the moment the transformation begins to happen. In contrast to that, the other main character you heard read is Haman, who is second in command in Persia. And instead, what we find for him is we might say that he has reverence sickness. He can't stand the fact that one man won't revere him and won't honor him. And that gets at him so badly that he, instead of transforming, mutates. He becomes worse than he was before. Now, I would say that there are similar choices put before you and I in our lives. Moments where we will have the opportunity to trust and know God, and if we do, it becomes a transforming moment, and if we don't, it becomes a mutating moment. We become less and God meant us to be. And everybody that hopes to be a faithful ambassador for God, a representative for God in the world, will face those moments, and those moments will become the transforming moments in their ambassadorship and their representation. And so what I'd like us to do in the time that we have is to look at two points what it means uh, to see the presence of transforming trust and then the absence of transforming trust, how those look different. And we'll look at those two people, Esther and Haman. So first, the presence of transforming trust as we see it demonstrated in Esther's life. Archaeologists have found in Persia at this time sculptures, uh, reliefs, And the image on them, on one of the images, is a king seated on his throne and a scepter pointed out, and behind him an attendant with a really big axe. And this uh, likely is what Esther saw when she was approaching the throne. 
We already know that by the law of Xerxes, uh, only seven people could come into his presence uninvited. Everybody else had to be invited or they risked their life. And this is just one of the risks that Esther was facing. When you think about her goal, her mission is to get the king to reverse the edict that Haman got put in place to commit genocide against the Jewish community. When you think about the odds that she faces, they're really staggering. Number one, she has to hope she catches the king when he's in a good mood, at a time of favor. And already we know that she hadn't been with him. That She's his wife, bear in mind, the queen, but she had not seen him for 30 days. So it may be his affections are already cooling off and he's moved along in the harem. Number two, for the king to do this, it would mean losing a huge financial donation. I'd mentioned before that he's waging a war against Greece and he's losing and he's depleted the treasury. So when Haman comes in with this ambition to wipe out the Jewish community, he says, and why don't I do this? Why don't I give you a lot of money? So that was an appeal for the king. He would have to reverse that. He would have to turn over the laws laws of the Medes and the Persians, which you might know was a pretty uh, serious thing. That didn't happen. It may have happened sometime, but it was written in stone. And lastly, she had to reveal her identity as a Jewish woman. That's a lot that needs to happen, right? A lot that needs to happen. And so she moves ahead. Just like you and I move ahead, because bear in mind, Esther gets no signs from heaven. She gets no miracles. She has to go with divine common sense. She basically prays and has to go with her gut, just like you and I do, day to day. Now, maybe the thing that you're facing isn't so big. Maybe it's you're praying that uh, God would change the heart of your boss, or a landlord, or an insurance adjuster, or a judge. But still, you're in this place where you're basically going, I need you to move God, and I don't know how things are going to play out, and I'm using my best wisdom and understanding. But she does that, and that is the exact moment when the empowering comes. Now, those of you that are Harry Potter fans, you might remember uh, when Harry has his uh, big task, if he's going to defeat Voldemort, he has to extract a memory from Professor Slughorn. And so uh, what he ends up doing is he gets a vial, he wins a vial of liquid luck. And he takes this stuff, and basically when you take it, everything just goes right for you. You're just sort of floating. You're not worried about everything. Everything goes right. Well, trusting God works better than liquid luck. When you're trusting in God, the Almighty God, to move ahead with your plan, he's going to empower your skills and empower your circumstances in a way that you wouldn't anticipate. King David, who faced no shortage of trials in his own life, hunted down not only by the king of Israel, but other enemies. I mean, he spent a lot of his time running from people and just escaping them. This is what he says. Listen in one of the Psalms, Psalm 18. For by you, God, I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless, He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. 
You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. What he's saying there is that God empowered him, empowered his gifts and his skills. You find a similar thing in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says to his mentee Timothy, I want you to fan into flame the gifts that you've been given. Or the Apostle Peter says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, whatever we would face. And so, that moment when Esther said to Mordecai, and we saw it last week, when he said, when she said rather, okay, I'm going to stick my neck out on the line. If I perish, I perish. At that point, in the text, in the narrative, you see there is a change in the way that she functions. At that moment, a few things happen. One is Esther becomes more decisive. Right after she says, if I perish, I perish, she then moves into leadership mode, and she begins to tell Mordecai what to do. Mordecai was the one giving the instructions before. He was the father. But she then steps up into leadership and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather all the Jewish community in the capital. I want them to pray, and I want them, or rather, I want them to fast for three days. Don't eat anything. She becomes decisive. She also then assumes authority of her position. In verses 2 and 3 and 11, you see references to Queen Esther. Now, all the references to Queen Esther, except for two, happen after she decides to take this risk. All the references to her as queen happen, or except for two, happen after she decides. Before that, we don't hear much about her impact at all as queen. But here we find the reference three times. And as that happens, you find that she becomes... Uh, strategic in what she does, not just decisive and assuming authority, but she becomes wise and strategic. She presents herself to the king confident but humble. In verse 1, we're told she put on her royal robes, so she's asserting her authority at that point, but also she understands it's very important for the king that you come in meekness because the last queen got banished. So Esther, in her wisdom, is playing both sides of that. She's not pulling back. She's got her royal robes on, but she also comes there in there in a meek way. And when the king says to her, I want you to ask me, he, first of all, he notices something's bothering her. And he says, uh, I want you to ask me. And finally, she says, you expect her to blurt it out. She doesn't blurt it out. She says, what I really would like is for you to come to a feast that I'm going to prepare for you and Haman. And by that, she's doing two things. She's testing the waters a little bit further because it's one thing for him to say, I will do this one thing, but then he accepts the feast. Obviously, it's a way to honor him. He accepts going to the feast. And then when he asks her again, what would you like? She said, will you come to another feast? So she's ingratiating him toward her wisely. Each little thing softening his heart toward her, making him more inclined toward her. At the same time, she's showing honor to Haman. You can imagine if she just came out of the gun straight toward Haman, the king might think, you just got something against my second in command. But when the thing gets revealed, he won't see them. And so she's operating with a lot of wisdom here. And the catalyst is, the catalyst is that moment where she trusts God enough to take a risk and to move out. In Psalm 84, the psalmist says this, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, 
they go from strength to strength. Did you hear that? People that rely on God's strength move from strength to strength. Haman moves from weakness to weakness to weakness. And I won't ruin the story if you don't know what happens to him. And so as we rely on God's strength, our strength grows, and it's that act of trust that becomes the moment of transformation for you and I. And you see it in our lives. I see it in people's lives all the time. Let me give you a couple examples. For instance, someone uh, has basically been, uh, let's talk about the church. Someone has been sort of on the fringe of the community of the church. You know, maybe kind of part of it, but not, and this has maybe gone on for years. And they decide to take the risk to jump into the community, be known, to serve. And at that point, there's a transformation. I've seen it over and over. They become more powerful. They begin to flourish spiritually. They begin to use their gifts spiritually. It's a decision and a moment of transformation. Or maybe someone decides that the criteria for dating and marriage will no longer be only if someone's cute and charming. But it'll actually depend upon their spirituality, their faith, and whether or not they encourage my faith. That's a big moment of transformation. Another one would be going public with your faith. Kevin prayed about it earlier. The willingness to say to someone, you know, this is who I am spiritually. I'm someone that follows and loves Jesus Christ. I'm crazy. I'm an empty tumor. I believe in an empty tomb, a resurrected man. Or it may be that transforming moment is you actually becoming a Christian. Maybe you've been contemplating it here. And, you know, you've been in a place where you've just sort of been waiting on it. Another transforming moment, I would say, is a moment when someone begins to see their job not as a way to prestige and status, but they begin to see it as a calling from God a way to serve God, a way to understand how their work contributes to the bettering of the world and the common good. And lastly, it might be a moment of transformation for you is the moment where you do a radical act of obedience, where you quit something or you give up something. So all these things can be that moment. But where does the strength come from to do that? To take that step so that you might be transformed. Well, unlike Esther, who was basically hoping it hinged on a king that would show her favor and extend a scepter to, those that turn to God through Christ have a much better assurance because they know that their king extends the scepter, right? They know that he's going to say, come, and you're invited in. The book of Hebrews says that, uh, you know, God has given his children the authority to approach the throne of grace with confidence. The book of Ephesians says that through Jesus Christ you get boldness and access with confidence with God. The king extends the scepter to you. It's through faith in Christ that you understand you wear the royal robes, that God has decked you out in the royal robes, that you are holy and blameless with you know the, the righteousness of his son. You understand that you've been brought near to the holy of holies. How? Through the atoning sacrifice of the son of God for you. You understand that you not only wear the royal robes, but you are the beloved of the king. You are the bride of the king. And his favor and his love for you never wanes. And lastly, you understand that the Spirit of God lives in you. 
The very resurrection of God's power lives in you as we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. And so in the end, what I'm trying to get you to see is it's not the act of faith, actually, that's the transformation. It's the object of the faith that becomes the moment of transformation. As the New Testament would say, we get changed when we see the beauty and glory of Jesus and we meditate and come to know it deep in our heart. That's how it happens. But the opposite's also true. When that moment is presented before you and I, and we don't believe all those things I just said, and instead we try to live in our own righteousness by our own good deeds, when we try to be our own God and Savior, in those moments, if you shrink back, you shrink. If you shrink back, you shrink as a person. You know, I've said this before, but I've seen it in my own life and the lives of other people where God puts a big decision before us. Maybe it's to get into a relationship or get out of a relationship. Maybe it's an opportunity to use the talent or skill that he's given to us, but we, we don't want to be in that sort of spot. Whatever. When we, when we yield to indecision, indecision leads to more indecision. Lack of faith will actually spread into your life and make you less confident across the board. And it's those moments where we go, I'm stepping forward, you will find that confidence moves into other areas of your life because you've exerted that muscle. In Haman's case, the absence of trust leads to the tragedy of idolatry. Let's move on to him. The absence of transforming trust. Now, Haman, in many ways, would be the envy of anybody. He's second in command. And he's got a pretty good life, by his own words. I mean, you heard it read. And Haman recounted to his family and friends the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions he had, all the ways the king had honored him, how he advanced himself above the officials and servants of the king. Even the queen Esther said, no one but me would come to the feast that was prepared. And tomorrow, get this, I'm also invited by her again to go see the king. You would expect at that point he would go, my life is good, God has blessed me. But what does he say? Yet all this is worth nothing to me. Because that guy Mordecai will not give me honor. Now, I want to say there's two things we see there. And that, I'm attacked. Did you see that? It really it was a huge bug. You know, here I am talking about Esther's risk, right, to die. And I, a fly hits me and I'm, I'm undone. Oh, well, God will humble as he may. Um, so he relies on the world for his basis of self-worth. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where when you're snubbed or you're disappointed in some area of your life, you turn to another area of your life to feel good about yourself. So look what happens here with Haman. You know, Haman, it says, went out of the feast with Esther. He was joyful and glad of heart. But when he saw Haman, or rather when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and saw that he didn't rise or tremble, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. And then what did he do after that? He's, so you imagine, he comes out. He's on cloud nine, and then this one thing, this one guy gets his goat, and in that moment, he's either going to burst with wrath, but instead he goes home and throws a party for himself. He invites his family and friends and says, I need to make myself feel better. 
So he invites all the people that are important, and he basically talks about himself. It's like a good old-fashioned Washington cocktail party, you know, where he just sort of like, you know, indirectly lets everybody know what he's accomplished, how important he is. And in that, you know, you see that Haman is basically relying on the world for his sense of self-worth. That's where his trust is. And you and I can relate, right? We laugh because we can relate. We rely on our promotions. We rely on our achievements. We rely on that idea that that person who we really admire would say to us, you're really great. Now, yesterday, uh, I had this wonderful opportunity. Some of you know that, you know, my love music, I studied music, I play guitar, dot, dot, dot. So yesterday, uh, I had opportunity to see... Um, one of the greatest guitar players on the planet, jazz, blues guitar player, a guy named Mike Stern. Just take my word for it. He's one of the greatest on the planet. But more than this, one of the local music stores had a master class where you could go. And it was, it was just so good. I mean, it was two and a half hours. There were only like 20 people there. And this guy is like so generous. He, he could make anybody feel like they could play. You know, he's just so humble and he powers people. Just, you know, great. But, you know, as I was anticipating going to this master class, and, you know, a couple of days before, I'd find myself daydreaming a little bit. And I was like, you know, I wonder, I can imagine myself going, you know, I need a volunteer up here. And, you know, and I, I, I he would pick me. And I would get up and, you know, and we, we jam a little bit. And I would like play the solo of my life. The solo of my life. And he would look at me and he would go, what, what is this? Like, who are, you must do this full time. Oh, no, I don't, you know, I just, on the weekends, I just play a little bit on the weekends. Like, who is this guy, right? So yeah, my mind sort of daydreamed, I did kind of pull it back, but you know how that goes, you're, you're there. But this is reality. Uh, I show up at the thing, I walk in the door, and there is someone on stage, a 16-year-old kid, and he's killing it. I mean, he's this 16-year-old kid is up there, and he is just like, you know, playing, and I'm in this room with a bunch of middle-aged guys like me. You know, we're, we're, we're watching this kid playing, and, and you know, I'm just, uh, there's one part of me that's just going, I'm celebrated, that I'm, it's wonderful, and this other part of me is just like, this is not at all like how I imagined the daydream was going to go, right? And, and more so, in my worst moments, I'm like, you know, he's great, but, you know, he's, he's overplaying a little bit. Let's just, I mean, you know, he'll, he'll season a bit. You know, he'll, he'll season a bit once he, you know, he gets going. And of course, you know, Mike Cern is being very generous because he's a younger kid, but we all know, you know, there's all, all these things you have to do in your mind to make yourself feel like you've got self-worth in the world. Well, needless to say, you know, this is us. This is how we do it. And, and you may do it with your job or, or maybe it's, you know, uh, the person you really want to be attracted to you or the person you were dating that broke your heart. You find that, you know, you can't do anything about that, so you turn to work. And you, like, pour yourself into work. Because that's one area where you can feel good about yourself. Or some other way. At that point, when you and I try to hook our trust to the world for that self-worth, we will deform and not transform. And uh, th- there's a moment in the scripture that I just love. When, uh, in Psalm 73, where there's a Levite priest who's having what I'll call a case of the Hamans. He's having a Haman moment. He's looking around, and everybody has everything that he wants to have, but he doesn't have it. And he talks about how the way he deforms. Listen to what he says. When my soul was embittered, he was envious. When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, God. 
mutating effect. But nevertheless, he didn't stay there. He comes to understand, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on nothing, nothing on earth I desire beside you. You see what happened. His trust shifted to a relationship with God and away from the world. But the second way that we see this absence of transforming trust in Haman's life is one thing becomes everything to him. One thing becomes everything to him. Haman reminds you of another king in the Old Testament, King Ahab. Now, Ahab is the king, and he's got everything he wants, but he's sulking. He's sulking because there's one guy that has a better vineyard than him, Naboth. And it drives him nuts. And his wicked wife, Jezebel, says, well, here's what you need to do. You just need to murder the guy and take the vineyard. Then you'll feel better. And so basically they trump up some charges on him, and he gets stoned to death, and he takes the vineyard. But it's the same thing you find in Haman. You know, it's that one thing he's got to have. I mean, Haman has it all. And here's the thing. He even has the law in place to murder Mordecai and murder all his people. But that's not good enough. He wants to really kill him. It's not enough just to kill him. He wants to really kill him. Like, I want to hang him up high on a 70-foot gallows. That was insane. That was insane. But that's where he at because that everything has now become that one thing. He says it. Nothing's worth to me as long as I see this guy here. He's trusting this and that to transform his emotions. And isn't that what you and I hope to do? We look at all these other things, and in our minds we think, if I could have that, it would transform me. Emotionally, it would transform me. The circumstances of my life would get a lot better if I could have that one thing. But it doesn't. But again... King David sort of flipped this, and he had his own problems too, right? But he got it overall and at the end. And this is what he says. He sings this song. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He comes to a point where he says, you know what the one thing is for me? I want to be with you, and I want to see your moral beauty, God. I want to be captivated. And that's what we're all after, really. I mean, everything we're trying to get is really probably just a beauty quest. But he finds it's in God. And so, in the end, a faithful ambassador has this choice before them. And you have this choice this evening. You really do. It's a big choice. Absence of trust just will lead you down a path where you'll lose more and more. But we hope for better things here because God's Spirit has been given to us. And God has brought us the gospel and He's come after us in the person of His Son. Instead, you and I can put trust in Him and experience transformation. Beginning today. Beginning now. God begins to unroll it in our lives. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for the work that you do by your own spirit and the lives of those that trust you. Would you help us to do that?
each in our own individual way in Christ's name. Amen.